welcome to Cheer Up, Buddy, the Sad Man Movie Podcast. I'm Tom. I'm ready. And this week we're talking about the 1952 Akira Kurosawa Ikiru, which means to live. Ready? How you doing? I'm doing okay. There are four dogs in my house now for this week. Uh, we have three dogs, and then we are babysitting a fourth dog, and so it's four spitzy-type dogs just running around the upstairs. It's been two days. The dog is nice. It's 11 years old. Uh, kind of looks like a Shivinu, but... I will not be too sad when it goes home to its real family. <laughs> Are you getting paid in dog coin to take care of it? Yeah, of course. The hell else would I get paid for it? No, we're doing it as a favor. You know, we felt like it, we, we suggested babysitters to the neighbor and the neighbor, it seemed like they couldn't afford a babysitter, a dog sitter for the dog. So uh, we have taken, taken the dog in for a week. So yeah, the dog does keep barking Elon Musk, I think <laughs> is what it sounds like. So Maybe that's how we'll get paid, but I don't know. Um, free speech. Or, or free speech. Yeah. <laughs> Displacement theory. Bark, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Same old shit here. Uh, currently, oh, what is it? It's, uh, my phone says it is seven degrees outside, which is actually a uh, increase from yesterday when it did not get above zero outside. So we're, uh, now I can put my shorts on and sunbathe, but. Holy shit, it is really fucking cold in Colorado the past couple of days. So I guess most of the Midwest is dealing with it. I, what can you do? I didn't, I know those were numbers, but I didn't know those were potential temperatures as well. So that's terrifying. I, I, uh, you know, I have to walk the, one of the dogs like, you know, at like 11 or 12 at night and it gets to be like, you know, 40 something here. And I'm like, this is fucking terrible. This is ridiculous. Um, uh, and it puts it in perspective to hear that it is now, you know, seven degrees for you. So two things that happened yesterday while taking my dog out on the patio mm -hmm. in the morning, I forgot that. I, so having grown up in Florida and Georgia for the first half of my life, I did not learn until I was in my thirties that I have cold air asthma which if people don't mm. know, it's just like when you inhale very cold air, your lungs just sort of like freak the fuck out. And I've been pretty good about it the past couple of years. Like I've, I, I, I layer up more than more than most people do. So when I'm out in like 30 degree weather, even 40 weather, I'm wearing like a big puffy coat. So I look probably like an idiot to a lot of people who grew up in this sort of temperatures. But I wasn't thinking about yesterday. And I think when we went out in the morning, it was negative eight degrees. And so my dog luckily was like, oh, fuck this. So she went really quickly and we came back inside and about 20 minutes later, I just had like a five minute long coughing fit. And for about two hours or so, I had just like pressure on my chest that felt like a maybe a five pound weight for a while. Mm. And so now when I've been going outside, I'm wearing an old like early pandemic mask. It's not medical grade or anything. It's just like one of those handkerchiefs with ear straps in essence. I've started mm -hmm. putting that over my mouth so I don't suck in Arctic air. And then I also had to take my glove off yesterday to use a poop bag to pick up my dog's poop. And about the 45 seconds that that took to pick it up and tie it with my hand exposed, I have about four cuts on my hand now just from where my hand dried out and just like flexing Oof. fingers like the the creases are cut and split and there's all these little cuts on my hand. So Oof. It sucks. It uh, It's not fun. And there's also no snow. So like, at least if there's snow, there'd be like some kind of visual element to it. Be like, oh, this is this is kind of 
the bee's knees. Inter- this is kind of like natural beauty in a way, but no, it's just cold. It's cold yeah. and sunny. And it's just like, this is just, it's like nature's gone bipolar. It's like, make up your fucking mind. Are you cold or are you sunny? Like you're just, I don't know. It's pick a, pick I a don't mood. Like it. Exactly. Um, have you considered it's, this is nature's way of telling you that humans shouldn't live there? Is that possible? <laughs> if it was more prolonged, yes. I don't think it's as egregious as like South Florida, where I grew up, where just the heat and humidity obviously yeah, drives fair. people insane. Like, there's enough just, anecdotal evidence that, that, yes, that weather variety is not good for the human species. We've determined that. So it's not as bad. It always, the thing I do like about it is it always gives me an excuse to watch the thing. So anytime I get an excuse to watch that, I appreciate. And, it, you know, I'm mostly a hermit anyway, so it's not like I'm disappointed I can't go out anywhere because I'm not going anywhere, even if it was nice weather. But mm-hmm. I just don't like it, like, hurting. I just want to yeah. live my life without the weather trying to kill me in very subtle ways. Well, I I will, given, um, I don't know if you know this, but Mystery Science Theater 3000 is now running, like, 24 hours a day all the time. And so if I need something to just put on, I will put on Mystery Science Theater and so the phrase deep hurting does come to mind, but I was going to tell you my, my winter story. You know, I did jet and I lived in Northern Japan where it starts snowing in like mid November. And I being an Atlanta boy had not, you know, really have not dealt with snow in a, a real sort of fashion. And so I didn't understand that like snow falls and then can like melt during the day and then refreeze at night. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I came, like it snowed the first time I was there in Northern Japan. I came down my stairs the next day and I slipped, like tore like a ligament in my foot and was just basically out of commission the entire like winter. Um, not that I'm like a big like winter sports guy or anything, obviously, but um, it was a real like piece of shit. <laughs> um, and so I did go to therapy for like six months, like physical therapy. And um, yeah, like I was like, winter, like this is terrible. <laughs> winter sports are a crock of shit. When I yeah, first true. moved out to Colorado, I thought, oh, I'll give skiing a try. Mm-hmm. And then I found out all the logistics that go into it. You have to wake up at like four in the morning and get on the road immediately and then you have to fight through traffic before sunrise to get to the slopes and everything's expensive even to rent it would have been like two hundred dollars to rent equipment and i did not have the resources at the time to do that and i was like oh fuck this i want to sleep in and like enjoy myself and there's nothing enjoyable about waking up early fighting traffic to go fight sled like skiing traffic on the mountain or on the on the slopes and it's like so i've never tried it I'm never going to. I'm 40 now. I can't risk going on. You've made your decisions. I don't want to end up like Sonny Bono. Fair. No, we we went, quote unquote, skiing, uh, my partner and I, for some work thing, back when the tech industry was like, why don't you eat sushi off this naked lady kind of, you know, parties, whatever. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was it was in Tahoe and we went tubing like one time and the rest of the time was like, where's the hot chocolate? Can I go see the, I think it was the Lego movie at that time. Um, mm-hmm. th- that was basically like what I filled the day with. Like it's nice and I'll sit on the porch and watch the snow, uh, but I really just want like hot chocolate. And I think I might do that today. Now that, I, now that it comes back to mind, 
um, that might be the the goal for today. Well, I, I do have to say, I guess it is fitting that we're talking so much about snow, since that's the most yes. iconic image of the movie that we are discussing this week. Yeah, well, I was going to say, so, you know, I, I edited last week's podcast to the apartment and I feel bad about it. So apologies to our to our listeners, because it's a little choppy at the end there. But I was like looking at the podcast stats and stuff and we have... We had one listener from Belgium one time and we had one listener from Germany one time and God bless you, both of you, if you ever listen to this <laughs> podcast again. But I looked at our stats. Donka Shane, I think that's what yeah. Engelbert Humberdink told me. Yeah, sure. I learned all my uh German from uh Sound of Music. I don't know, whatever. If that's appropriate, I don't even know. But I looked at our stats and our best two episodes were the haunted in terms of listeners were Haunted Mansion and Iron Man 3. So it seemed like we should be doing recent popular movies. And instead, as you mentioned, we've chosen to alienate our audience once again by choosing <laughs> 1952's Black and White Akiru. And so I do have a quick summary. Kanji Watanabe, the glorious Takashi Shimura, a low-level section chief in City Hall, gets a cancer diagnosis and struggles to find meaning in his life. Tom, what did you think of this movie? So I'll say I, I've been familiar with the... I guess the cover art for mm -hmm. several years now. I mean, you can't be like a criterion nerd without like seeing this cover art everywhere all the time. Exactly. I had not seen it yet, mm -hmm. but I will say I've had this weird, I guess, fantasy for lack of a better word for a long time, like maybe 20 years. I've wondered what it would be like to live in the body of a small elderly Japanese man. I don't know where that came from. I guess in my brain, that's like the antithesis of being a tall, young white man, where it's just like, what would it be like to be in the complete opposite? And for some reason, my brain landed on, on small elderly Japanese man, which it was probably partially induced by this image of this movie. Mm -hmm. So I've been wanting to watch it for years. Just never got around to it. This was my first viewing of it. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, <laughs> uh -oh. obviously, it's yeah. not bad. But I think it would have hit me harder earlier in life where it's kind of like, okay, because I'd say like, in Western terms, it, it has a lot of like the the carpe diem mindset to it. Mm -hmm. And I think as a younger man, I would be like, yes, yes, I got to live my life to the fullest. And not that my perspective on that has changed. I do think I, I think for the most part, I sort of lived out the ideals of this movie because I did have, I've had two really boring bureaucratic jobs during my life already. And I quit them both in pretty, pretty quick turnaround. So mm -hmm. I do think I can relate to the movie. I think it's just that like it was as, as profound as it would have been if I'd seen it earlier in life. I think, mm -hmm. and, and that's not a knock on that. It's just coming at it where I am at this point in my life. So it, it didn't hit as hard, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah, I I understand where this movie's coming from, and it's exactly right. <laughs> you are correct. No, and it's interesting. I thought about this, and I saw it in my twenties. I want to say maybe my even my like late teens, uh, as I got into Kurosawa. Like this is like you know, really the second or third Kurosawa movie you get into when you get into Kurosawa, you know, after Seven Samurai, it's either this or, this or Rashomon. And mm -hmm. it really hits differently, I guess, at at in your 40s compared to your 20s. And I did think about that at the end of the movie 
in terms of Kurosawa being like this is like a fairly early period movie for him like it's not like he was an old man when he made this this is you know a young man kind of and and certainly it's pulled from that novel whose name i do not remember but i put in my notes um the death of ivan Ilyich, um leo yeah, Tolstoy novel. Like yeah mm -hmm. and and so i mean it's not completely his own work but it is interesting to think about like this is a young man thinking about uh you know an old man sort of trying to live his life um or an older man he's not you know that old yeah and so i had the experience of working in a government office and it was, in, in japan it wasn't quite this bad but it was like sort of bad <laughs> mm -hmm. and you know i at least like you know this was as i was teaching but i was like based out of the city hall or town hall i guess it was because i lived in the middle of nowhere and you know, people did want to do work, but it it also was, you know, there also was like a, a feeling of like marking time or not being able to get things done and definitely not like rocking the boat. And especially I didn't experience it as much because like I could do stuff as a teacher that I like figured out, but I totally understand sort of the, the, the ennui that, that uh, the Watanabe character is feeling at the beginning of the movie. And I do, I understand like the point of the movie sort of being like, you know, I think we've mentioned this philosophy on the podcast before, but like everything is random and the only meaning you assign to life is, you know, or the only meaning in life is the meaning you assign to it. And to me, that's like where the movie sort of hit home, I, I guess. Like there's no mm -hmm. meaning to anything that uh watanabe is doing except for the meaning he assigns to it i mean to some degree i guess now that i'm talking like i have to i do have to say that i watched this like right before we started recording the podcast because i was like feeling under the weather sort of during the week and so you know it hits di i mean it's different like talking about it right after you've seen it again as opposed to like you know having a day or two to sort of digest but there's some meaning for him building this park, which is ultimately how he finds like meaning in his life in that, like he's got the support of the neighborhood and things like that. But it's, I, to me, it was like the meaning he assigned to like accomplishing this project. But I, I'm, I, I'm curious to, as to what you think about sort of that journey, Watanabe went on in terms of, you know, kind of finding, trying to find like something in life. Yeah, I, I think that's the biggest question everybody kind of has growing up. It's like, what, it, you know, not even growing up. I think it persists What's the point? throughout your life. Yeah. Just, I think everyone wants the feeling or have the, the ability to believe that what they do matters. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people don't always get that satisfaction. Yeah. And just be, speaking from my personal experience, my first kind of foray into this bureaucratic world, my first real job out of law school was working for the Social Security Administration. And what I would do was I would type up the decisions that got reached by administrative judges. And this would be the report that would get sent out to the people filing and trying to argue that they were disabled and needed to receive government assistance. And... Mm -hmm. It was really frustrating at times because I would see these strangers' medical records and mm -hmm. testimonies, and it was like it's a very 
you know, it's not a full picture of their lives, but no, anybody who's filing for disability, except for like the occasional person abusing opioids, which that was probably less than 1% of all applicants. So like people who say that people, you know, abuse the system, fuck off. That's just not the case. But it was so frustrating because I still remember there was one case in particular where a woman was having like frequent migraines, like almost daily, I think seemingly like almost nonstop. Mm -hmm. And as someone who has suffered migraines occasionally and knows how debilitating they can be like when i get them i always want to kill myself like that's how painful they are like you can't open your eyes Mm -hmm. every noise sounds like an explosion like occasionally i it like makes me sick to the point where like i'm vomiting blood and bile like it's disgusting yeah and this woman's medical records was just filled with years and years of migraine issues and like her primary care physician that she'd seen for ages was like this woman cannot work yeah and then the judge who heard the decision was like oh no this person can work and i was just so mad like i remember i almost went into the judge's office to tell him like i wouldn't have said fuck off but like that would have been the gist of the message yeah and one of my supervisors had to like walk me back and just be like don't do this (laughs) and and I think I think I was upset with the job prior to that, but I think that was kind of the moment. It's like I can't be here. Like I, yeah. I ended up working that job only fourteen months, I think, before I quit, mm-hmm. and it was just frustrating. Then you know, not as dramatic, but the job I moved out to Colorado for, as I was a, a patient advocate for a dental school. So like, I think I've talked about this on the pod already, but like that was the same thing. Where it's like they hired me under the pretense that I'd be helping people who had gotten shitty care. And yeah. all I was doing was getting yelled at on the phone, relaying that message to the dean of the school who could decide what sort of compensation the person got and then telling the person like, so I was just a middle middle man. And that sucked because I was just I wasn't helping anybody. Yeah. And so there was one line in this movie that really kind of hit me mm-hmm. where it just seems so universally true <laughs> and remind me both those jobs was uh, the best way to protect your place in the world is to do nothing at all. Yeah that was one of the lines when I heard it, I was just kind of like a gut punch. I was like, oof, that's definitely a universal truth. Sadly. Yeah. I, it, yeah. Like, and you know, we, again, I've digested it. I should have come, I guess a little more prepared, but you know, you see the end of the movie and I felt like I went to a lot of like drinking parties and things like that for work that ended up with people getting very emotional and then at the end, like no longer sort of like, you know, that was all sort of said in in the heat of the moment, uh, drunkenness, whatever. And things have gone back to normal in the uh, the office where Watanabe worked, uh, except for the one, you know, I guess younger guy. And if you ask me the question, how, do old are, how old are these people? Um, they're all 100. But the younger guy in the office <laughs> sort of, you know, he's he's got a little bit of a, you know, a seed growing in him from what Watanabe did. But, you know, overall, you know, the best way to like, you know, stay in a job is to like keep doing nothing, like don't rock the boat. And especially sort of, um, you know, in Japan, like that, you know, the 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 raised nail gets hammered down kind of thing. And 
it really was like visually sort of present there when the younger guy stands up, uh, when he can't take it anymore, when things have gone back to normal at the office. Um, and Kurosawa was kind of that kind of director. Like he was considered very individualistic. He was considered very Western by like, you know, kind of the Japanese film industry. And you can see that sort of individualism in this movie, you know, and, and a lot of his subsequent films as well. That's interesting that he's considered a Western filmmaker mm-hmm. because I listened to the commentary today. I watched it for real yesterday and listened to the commentary today. And I forget who the person was, but he was saying that there is some Marxist influence in Kurosawa's work and based on like how he felt like the government should work by the people for the people more like collective action, which I guess was kind of like the, you know, the big threat of communism at the time. Mm-hmm. And so it is interesting that he did that. He got labeled as that by some people when all it really was like, I just want people to be nice to each other. That's kind of like the yeah. overarching theme of, you know, I guess it's not the overarching, but like a sub theme of the movie. It's just like the purpose of these people's jobs is to, work on community projects that helps the community as a whole and no one yeah. does shit. And so it's kind of yeah. like, it's, it's an, it's incredible to think that some people at the time took that, Oh, he's a communist. So that's <laughs> well, very I think disappointing he was like, to yeah, hear. Like left-leaning, like definitely like humanist. I, I can't, I wouldn't, I can barely ascribe like terms to my own political leading. So I don't want to do it for like someone whose sure. time was like, you know, kind of out of mine and, and, you know, sort of in a different culture, but yeah, like I totally get it. And I know I don't want to talk about Seven Samurai too much because like, because like Seven Samurai, like, you know, we should talk about Seven Samurai because it fits the the thing of this podcast as well. The the kind of motto of this podcast or the theme of this podcast. And it's a, you know, a good movie to take on. But Takashi Shimura is also in that movie. And I remember hearing in the commentary for that movie quite a while ago, that's the last movie that Kurosawa made that like, there's any sort of sense of people coming together and being able to accomplish something. Uh, mm-hmm. After that, like, it doesn't happen anymore. Like, either the individual accomplishes something or the group doesn't, isn't able to accomplish that goal. Like, he's very sort of individualistic as as the movies sort of go on. And you can mm-hmm. kind of see it here with uh, Watanabe as a character, kind of being able to, like, put together this, project this humble sort of like park project that you know marks his revitalization in terms of being able to do something good for other people as you said um the other like comparison i wanted to make and i i'm just going to briefly mention it because again i think seven samurai is its own topic but seeing uh takashi shimura in this movie versus the next movie, uh, Seven Samurai, like this was Kurosawa's next movie is Seven Samurai after this one. And just like the just huge difference in his, he's like this, this whimpering, harrowed, you know, his voice is barely above a whisper for like 90% of this movie, you know, kind of trodden upon mid-level bureaucrat compared to like this leader of men that he is in the next movie. Uh, Just like, the amazing sort of like acting ability and the movie before this was stray dog with Mifune and he's like a grizzled sort of cop veteran cop in that movie. And just that range of being able to do this and then go on to be like 
sort of the Yoda of Seven Samurai is, you know, to me, somewhat amazing. I'm going to lose all my film cred by saying I've never seen Seven Samurai. What? But I thought you had. I No, it's just one of the things just like, oh, it's so long and I just never got around to seeing it. Mm -hmm. And so when I found out that the, the lead actor in this who plays, like you said, I don't know how old he's supposed to be. It's like we said last week or last time with the apartment where everyone after World War II looked like they were 30 years older than they were. So who the hell knows how old he was really, really yeah. supposed to be. But knowing that he went from this movie to a samurai movie, I was like, that's astounding. Cause he, I mean, you mentioned in the opening, but so his, he's this lifelong bureaucrat who finds out he has stomach cancer and yeah. sort of goes on this mini odyssey trying to kind of, figure out what he should do with his life yeah and really is result in an interesting structure to the film because he finds out very early you find out as the audience immediately that he has cancer yeah and then we i'm trying to I'm trying to think how to how, how i want to break up the structure of this episode in part because there's so many things i want to talk about so yeah. he goes to see the doctor and they initially tell him that hey, he's fine just eat reasonable foods but prior to that another patient told them oh if they tell you your stomach's fine and you can eat whatever if they say this this and this it means you have six months to live yeah and, you're screwed you've got stomach cancer they just don't want to tell and, you yeah and then the doctor tells the the our protagonist exactly what the other patient did and then after he leaves the other doctor's like shouldn't we just tell him he has stomach cancer it's like no it's better if they don't know which i guess i'll just jump into that question immediately what what do you want to know if something like that happens i definitely would i i, I have that question i had it for the end um what did you yeah that, what, i'm sorry yeah. I, that's i knew no, that's no, going to be okay. a meaty question so i didn't know whether i should like wait till later or just get to it now since like it comes up so early in the movie no i think you're totally right i don't that's a good question and especially i think there's like an element of like japanese society in the 50s here and like this hierarchy where the doctor is kind of like looking out for you and i'll, I'll tell you uh an anecdote i guess it's like when i was living in japan um i think yeah like at the end of my like teaching stint coming back for law school my dad had a heart attack and no one told me about this. Like no one told me he was like in the hospital. Like it was two weeks afterwards that I found out and they were like, my parents were like, well, you know, you were abroad. We didn't want to like, you know, kind of make things more difficult for you and things like that. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? Why didn't, why wouldn't you tell me? I would have come right back. That felt, that situation felt like this to me where someone is like, thinking they know better than you and that how to protect you. And I don't know, I, I mean, certainly the movie could not have happened if, you know, Watanabe did not know that he was, he only had six months to live, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think having the facts probably useful, it doesn't even have to be like, do you have stomach cancer or not? You have six months to live. Like, would you want to know when you are going to die and would you be able to like you know kind of plan your affairs and do the things that you want to do because i i'm sure there if i thought about my life in any meaningful way like there's plenty of like bucket list stuff that i 
have not mm -hmm. done that I would like to do. Oh, same. Yeah. yeah. Well, two things come from that. First off, it's reassuring to hear that your family does the same stuff that my family does <laughs> because situation that comes to mind for me was mm -hmm. my maternal grandmother who I was extremely close with. Like she was pretty much a second mother growing up. Like that's how, mm -hmm. like after my parents got divorced, like she lived with us. And even after my mom remarried, she lived four streets away. And like, I saw her pretty much every single day, probably, uh, you know, probably tailed off a little bit in high school, but you know, almost every day, at least every week until I went away to college. Mm -hmm. And then sophomore year, she got leukemia and I had no idea until my mom was like, oh, hey, uh, she's really sick. I don't think she has much more time. Mm -hmm. And I talked to her on the phone and it was like, oh, God, it was one of the most like haunting phone calls. Like she luckily had enough lucidity, like she knew who I was. Yeah. But like it wasn't a coherent conversation necessarily. Like it was kind of like she told me something and, you know, I don't know whether to, it sounds arrogant if I say it, but she, she, she said like something along the lines that like she thought I was the smartest person in the family, which like. I took as a big deal because her two sons were both uh, very accomplished physicians. <laughs> like, like one of my uncles was the uh, head of pediatrics at Duke's Children's Hospital for several years in the '90s. So, like, uh, not schmoes. Like, they actually had to accomplish a lot of stuff. So, like, mm -hmm. for her to say that she thought I was the uh, smartest—I think she said like you're the smartest of them all—was like I still think about that a lot, and I worry maybe she was drugged up enough to think that because i definitely don't and my output in the world has not <laughs> come anywhere near equaling my my uncles but it was right before our uh fall break junior year i remember i was supposed to go to new orleans with some friends and i had that phone call with her and i was like oh i gotta go home i want to see her one more time and so i think i flew home either the next day or two days later but she was she was already dead. I didn't know that. Like I got picked up at the airport by my parents. And then when we got home, they told me she had passed. And I just, I cried until I passed out for a couple hours and took a nap. And so I really wish I had known that she was in that state. So I could have like had a few more opportunities to like try and see her before it got to the point where you can't really interact with someone. Mm -hmm. um, and so that sucked. Uh, but even more so it sucked because my sister was pregnant at the time. My sister didn't find out for sure for a couple months, like she figured it out, but mm -hmm. my sister didn't get conclusive confirmation that our grandmother was dead for a couple months after the fact. Cause my mom was worried about what the emotional toll would have on the pregnancy. Um, so it's nice to hear that my family's not the only one that conceals that stuff. Uh, yeah. and I have to say, I am actually guilty of it myself. Um, when my biological dad died, I didn't tell anybody. I told our, I told one of our friends only because I was in town visiting her two days after it happened. And I didn't mm. want, I wanted her to know why I was sort of like in a mild fugue state. And then when I uh, had my own little uh, cancer issue a couple, like two years ago, uh, luckily it was the, if you're going to have cancer, it's the best cancer to have. Uh but I told very few people about that because I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to deal with people being like, Oh no. Cause I was like, 
realistically, I just had to get a bit a big chunk of skin cut off my side. So like, <sighs> it wasn't. It sucked, and I have a really gnarly scar there. But it wasn't life threatening at all. I didn't have to do like chemo or anything. So I didn't want people to be like, "Oh no, cancer." Um, so I am a bit of a hypocrite in that I, <laughs> I have. Uh, kept up the MO of my family as part of concealing uh, kind of important news like that. But, but I think there uh, is a difference between like, you know, kind of, I don't want to say mildly bad news. I mean, uh, but like something that you are like overall reasonably not positive about, but like it's not going to be life changing or life altering or life ending versus like, um, something that is, and is sort of like, I think there's a difference between sort of personal business and sort of something that is group business, whether it's that group of the family or, you know, a friend's group or something like that. And, and, uh, you know, maybe I, maybe like I'm interrogating that thought as I like express it, but I, I do think there is a difference between you telling everyone about sort of having skin cancer versus like so-and-so is, you know, had a, a potentially life ending uh, medical event or, or it's probably oh, sure. not long for the, yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. And that's, I mean, that was partially why I didn't tell anybody because it's like realistically in the totality of medical issues, it's not a big deal. So that's, you know, that's partially it, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Like it, it was, you know, small potatoes compared to something like stomach cancer, which is definitely going to uh, do you in before too long. Like it happens to our, our buddy in this movie. Yeah. So he, he gets this diagnosis right from the doctor or he gets the fake diagnosis that he's going to be fine. He understands he's got six months to live. And as you said, he kind of goes through this odyssey of trying to find things that are going to like fulfill life for him for the next six months. And he can't find it, honestly. Like, and this is the one thing I remember from the uh, maybe from the Criterion uh, from the Criterion commentary for this movie is that he strikes out basically on all the things that people tend to think of as life fulfilling. He starts with family and his son mm -hmm. and his wife, sort of, you know, kind of seem like assholes, uh, honestly. Yeah, the son and daughter in law are kind of craven dipshits yeah. and talking about him for his money um hoping that like his retirement settlement or his his pension payments will help them buy a house and things like that and i i had a note saying like well the children seem like assholes but is it that he was never there because you, you hear he like never you know took a break in 30 years of or never took a day off in 30 years of being this you know being a, a an employee at the at the city hall and so well yeah, oh, I, I yeah. definitely show it because there's that montage scene where he's yeah. singing back on his son and it's like the son is going in to have it i think an appendectomy and watanabe's like he goes he's next to him while he's on the the cart he yeah. goes down the elevator with them and then hands him off to a nurse and he's like i have to go to work i have things to do and the son's like what do you mean? Aren't you going to stay here? He's like, no, I have, I have to do work and leaves. And I think yeah. that was the moment where it's like, oh yeah, the son's probably like, oh fuck you forever at that point because it the mom's dead. Like yeah, the, 
so it's it's a widower it's just the watanabe and his son and then he's leaving his son yeah during surgery it's kind of like yeah i would kind of hate my dad too if he pulled that shit so it it yeah. definitely makes sense the family dynamics yeah and then but it, you're absolutely yeah. right like he it's like this mini odyssey where he like tries to find fulfillment with his family he doesn't tell the son what he that he has cancer yeah he goes to a bar to try to get drunk and he just runs into like this sh i was gonna say shitty but i guess the guy's not shitty he's just like this kind of like japanese hipster kind of i think he's a writer which yeah he's a, I think I he's a novelist get, yeah which i always feel kind of insulted when i see these characters <laughs> depicted on screen <laughs> but they're not wrong based on my many experiences in creative writing workshops, but, uh, and probably personal, if I'm being honest, personal experience too. Um, but so he, he, well, what he like picked up the kid's tab. It's probably like a guy in his twenties or something. And the guy, he confides, or Watanabe confides in this young novelist that he's dying of cancer. And he's like, Oh, we need to, we you need to live life to the fullest. And so like, they go and play pachinko, which is a gambling game, like yeah. sort of like a Japanese version of slots is my impression. Yeah. Um, they go to like, they go to bars, they go drinking, they go to like dance halls. And Watanabe ends up singing like the saddest karaoke song of all time. Like, a really real downer. I, I have oh, a yeah. <laughs> wait, yeah, wait, around wait that point. Down. Yeah. It, at that scene i wrote in my notes is this the saddest movie we've watched so far and i think it may be it does have a like kind of reaffirming ending yeah but i think the lows of this movie may be the lowest that we've seen so far that might be true i'm trying to think back but yes I, that might be true which i guess i'll just hop into the question that came from that scene what's the saddest karaoke song that you can think of that oh would totally God. ruin the mood i mean I, I'm going to preface this by saying Morrissey is clearly racist at this point <laughs> and I cannot, I love Morrissey, but I Me cannot too. listen. I stopped, I stopped listening to Morrissey because like, I can't. He's a sack of shit. He's a sack of shit. Exactly. He is a racist sack of shit, uh, racist nationalist sack of shit, but I feel like it's gotta be a Morrissey song and I'd have to like go back and think through it. But there was like a three month period where I was depressed and I listened to nothing but Morrissey for like over and over, like just every day Morrissey. Um, so feel like it's going to have to be more, maybe the Smiths. I don't know. Like I, I can at least, I haven't listened to a ton of Smiths uh, in a long time either, but at least I can like justify the Smiths by saying, well, you know, Johnny Marr is a good guy. Um, I can, I can deal with him. I don't know. Other than that, I feel like, well, Iron and Wine is going to like be up there, of course, and especially like the early, earlier stuff where it's more acoustic guitar and less like, let me get crazy mm -hmm. with like this, you know, five piece band or whatever. Um, and I do mention like, and I, I, I want to ask you the same question, so I don't want to get too far afield, but we think about life and like when you're young, when you're, you're 20 and I saw this movie, it's like, you have so many days where you're just trying to fill the time and you feel like you always have the time mm -hmm. to, you know, accomplish this thing that is going to be your legacy or, you know, give meaning to your life. But when you get up a little, you know, you get older for me, it's like, 
and I know this isn't true because every like kind of decade, I feel like it's true and uh, it's not, but I feel like in the forties, it's well, shit, I wasted all that time. Like, how am I going to like find this thing or do this thing that is sort of mm -hmm. ascribes meaning to my life. And so I wrote our endless number of days uh, down just as a quotation. And, you know, that's obviously one of uh, Iron and Wine's like albums. And, and that's my feeling is, you know, even when we don't know it, those days are there, like uh, th those days are numbered, even if it feels like uh, they, they're endless and we're just trying to fill the time when we're teenagers and like, you know, find something to like get us through the day. But same question for you, saddest karaoke song that you can bring down the uh, bring that bring down the group with. Well, first, I want to say I feel like we should be smoking cigarettes while we're having this conversation. I feel like <laughs> yes. we really dropped the ball by not doing that. Yeah, but my I'm very proud of my song selection for saddest karaoke song. I chose "Brick" by Ben Folds. Okay, I can't remember if Ben Folds or Ben Folds Five, but I yeah. thought if I were to go to like a karaoke room with my friends, like I used to in my twenties. And if I really just wanted to ruin the entire mood, I thought like, I'll just sing Brick. I feel like that would be the worst way to kind of like keep the energy light and happy. <laughs> I I feel like I haven't done it completely. Uh, so this was going to be my first uh, reaction or my first answer. But Radiohead's Creep is not like the 100% bring down song, but it's pretty good. It does bring the energy level down like pretty well. I think in the right audience, though, that could be like a little anthemic song for everybody to yeah, sing along true. to. I mean, it was, it was on Rock Band. I don't remember people being like, oh, this is a downer song to sing in Rock Band. Crying and gnashing of teeth on Rock Band. I, I think Eric Clapton is also a racist piece of shit. Am I correct about oh, that? Oh, yes. I, yes. Mm -hmm. But that uh, Tears in Heaven or whatever, like... Yeah, I feel that's like a good that's one too. One. Yeah. A baby, yeah, a kid falling out a window, that's going to bring down the mood. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that Meatloaf song is going to be too too much of an anthem to to really bring down uh what was it? I won't do that. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. He's like a Trump piece of shit too, right? Like I think that well, he's dead. He's dead. Who knows? He was. But, I don't know. God, I hope ASCAP doesn't come after us after that little performance. <laughs> we might have to bleep the name that on that one. Although the song would give it away, I guess. So yeah, who cares? Come at me. I need to get my legal chops back up to par. So yeah. So they, you know, it kind of felt to me during that whole sequence with the novelist is like a guy trying to consolidate his twenties into one evening. Yeah, exactly. Like trying to, trying to find that meaning in I, I, the word I I wrote down was hedonism. Like drinking mm -hmm. and hanging out with women and drinking, <laughs> eating. Like what, the, what, like what did the novelist say? He's like, I'm your Mephistopheles tonight, but I don't. There's no like you don't need to give me your soul in exchange or something like that. It was yeah, like he said something some like, line that. like that. Yeah, just kind of like indulge all your desires. Yeah. And so, oh, this actually. I wrote down, so when Watanabe's kind of like framing the scene for the kid, he's like, I have 50,000 yen that I'm going to spend in one night. Yeah. So I did the calculations. 50,000 yen in the early 1950s was equivalent to $344. Okay. And $344 in 1952 is equivalent to about $3,850 of modern money. Oh. So I felt like this was kind of like, the bender meme where it's like i'm gonna blow my money on blackjack and hookers 
Yeah. But I yeah. also I also wanted to ask if you had to spend thirty eight hundred dollars in one night, what would you do? <laughs> Shit, man. Uh, my tastes don't run that. Ex- I, I I do think. My, I was going to say, I don't think my tastes run that expensive. And I think honestly, like any place where I could blow, like, like, you know, I would eat something, I would eat something very good. And oh I've yeah. Been to, yeah. I've been to like a few, like amazing restaurants, um, where it's the bill has gotten like fairly high, but I think I'd be, it'd be very difficult, especially in sort of like a European like a, like a fancy French restaurant, I would feel very uncomfortable. Um, cause I, uh, you know, I don't live on the heights like that very much. So, I mean, I think that's what I would try and do, but also like my tastes are like, I'm a cheap date is, I guess is what I want to say. Um, so it'd be very difficult for me. I don't know. I mean, I guess like, if you're like disregarding like your student debt and all that shit that you don't know uh or that i have at least i don't know maybe you buy like five playstations and give it to like uh you know a children's hopeless center or something um oh, see i didn't even think about the altruistic angle that's maybe just shows what kind of piece of shit i am i guess no i think we're in this mindset of like how would you like blow it on yourself honestly and and we can kind of i don't know if it's completely the case but I think the movie suggests that Watanabe, this is not something he like does on a regular basis. This is his like, yeah, as you said, like trying to cram his twenties into like one night and trying to experience something that he hadn't experienced and trying to find fulfillment in that. And I, I mean, ultimately I think it, he comes up short, like it doesn't fulfill him, but no. yeah, he's trying to like, you know, understand this and, and see if it, it lends meaning to his life and, and, I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think of the things that like I would like to do and have not done. I don't know. Like one, you know, like one of the things that I really feel, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, I missed out on or missed out on, and you know, am sad that I didn't do it. Was like get into like marine biology and like learn stuff and like mm-hmm. you know kind of have those experiences. And so maybe I, I, you know, you re- I don't know if you remember that scene from Seinfeld where Elaine is, well. Elaine is dating the the executive at NBC and then tries to break up with them and he quits NBC to go do something mean, meaningful and like so is like on a boat with Greenpeace trying to like stop a whaler and dies on the boat and Larry David's like I'll tell her I'll tell her what you did I'll tell him what you did mm-hmm. you know maybe I do something like that maybe a little less life risky but if I only have six months like who gives a shit like um yeah but you know kind of something that's that's has meaning both to me and and maybe you know does good in the world as well and i don't know if you need the money for that but it would be helpful to like you know travel to the place and and do the thing and uh how about you how would you how would you blow that kind of money so i was coming at at it from the perspective that like you have thirty eight hundred dollars to be fully indulgent for yourself for one evening yeah but i also was having a hard time like how much more cheap dates. <laughs> what would i do because like yeah because like you know Drugs have no appeal. Yeah, you know I'm, I've always been very, oh, absolutely prudish with that. I just have n- never had any interest in anything. Uh, I don't really drink anymore. Not that I ever did. I mean, yeah, mostly I, the most dr- drinking I've ever done was when I moved to Colorado because there's nothing else to do. So I just went drinking with neighbors a lot. 
I don't know. I was thinking like maybe just like a nice hotel room, but it's also yeah. like this house is just like a dumbass staycation at that point where it's like, you know, there's no hotel in my, you know, where I am right now that I'd like to blow a couple thousand on. Cause fuck that. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, Hmm. Maybe like fly people out to see me. That would, I'd probably yeah. get more enjoyment out of that. Uh, but that's a boring answer. Let's move on. We, this is not, I can't think, I don't think any of us have any like, you know, coke and hookers answer that people want to hear sadly we're not bender yeah we can't we don't have the uh wherewithal to uh pull i don't know like i feel like you could go to a mcdonald's and just buy everybody's meal for like a day or two uh, on that kind of money and so you know maybe something like that it, yeah i think the altruistic group would be the right thing to do it's not even altruistic like i do think it'd be fun to like you know when you're not like a wage yeah. slave and you're you're you know, dependent you're on the the salary you make from McDonald's, you get to put on, I guess they don't wear the paper hats anymore, do they? But, um, you know, you get to put on the uniform and, and buy people's meals. And I, I, you know, I think even the altruistic stuff isn't that altruistic. And, may, you know, maybe we're getting into the definition of, of good and doing good, but there's a pleasure in like, you know, making someone's day or like doing something that uh is good that isn't completely altruistic i i would say i think we're all learning that you're a better person than i am right no now. i don't think that's true I, I have i done any of these things no i've uh you know my my patron saint is larry david so well you know i'm looking at my notes right now and there was one thing that came from the conversation with the novelist the the young novelist called the guy fascinating and he said i oh, he said this is rude, but I'm. I think you're fascinating. I don't think it's rude to call somebody fascinating necessarily. I, I think I'd probably take it as a compliment, but I guess it's all contextual. Yeah, and I wonder. Uh, I don't remember the exact lines in Japanese. And this was actually something very interesting for me too. You just like brought it to mind. I should have written it down as a note. But I saw this movie first again in my late teens, early twenties, when I was getting into Japanese. Like maybe not even having taken like a, a Japanese like community school class in high school or things like that. And now at this age, like I could basically watch this movie without subtitles. And it's like, and it's bit like when we're learning Japanese, like students in Japanese, like second language learners are like, shit, man, we could have like, you know, majored in Spanish and like learned something by now and, and feel like we're, we're better sort of at the language than we are in Japanese. But it was really, and I'm not trying to say this about, to brag about myself because there's more stuff I missed than I really should have. But like going from like having last seen this movie when I didn't speak, a, uh, you know, basically a lick of Japanese to like getting to the point where like I don't need the subtitles was like it. And I said like a lot because I'm I'm trying to like trying to to dissect my emotions, but it, it was a really sort of moving kind of thing. I don't know what the exact Japanese was for that line. But I wonder if, you know, it's a little like, you know, you're you're outstanding in a way and it's rude to kind of call you that in Japanese, whereas mm. the subtitle maybe has to like... That makes know, much more sense. Hard to nuance that into a subtitle. Mm-hmm. That, well, that answers that question. Well, I was thinking, during that entire novelist scene, I was wondering, like, yeah. was Kurosawa, like, super young when he wrote this? Is, what, is this one of his early movies or something? No. This was his 13th movie and he was 42 when this came out. So it didn't have, because it had a lot of that feel of like young man idealism. 
But I think there that while that is in the movie, it's definitely contrasted by like, oh, I'm middle aged and have seen how frustrating things are too. So I feel like that's equally balanced. I I do think that's interesting because I did feel like yeah, it's his thirteenth movie, but a lot of them were like during the war, sort of like propaganda movies, uh, you know, kind of things like that. And and I feel like a lot of Kurosawa scholars kind of start really like delving into his movies after the the you know the into the post-war period and so i think this is early on and you have to remember like he was making movies up until the 1980s um and so i think ron was like 80 something and so this is still like pretty early for him this and seven samurai are both like very early films in terms of like his entire sort of output and i do think there is a sense of watanabe working within the system to get something done and then in the next movie a group of people like in seven samurai a group of people coming together to accomplish something mm-hmm. and he doesn't do that anymore like after after seven samurai like that he starts it, it starts being more like individualistic and more sort of i don't want to use the word mis- misanthropic but like you know sort of the ills in society that can't be sort of changed or even sort of covered up by good actors. And so Mm. I do think, and, you know, we're looking at 40 as like, you know, basically death sentence age, but 42 (laughs) is still pretty young. And I feel like even with directors, especially, uh, I'm just thinking about like Western directors now, like uh, Scorsese, like has put out a film and, you know, kind of seeing the change in their, even they don't want to put out the same sort of message over their lifetime from, you know, something they did like in their forties to like something they did in their seventies, for example. Mm -hmm. No, when I, when I think of kind of older creators, I think of Leonard Cohen a lot. I've Mm -hmm. been a big fan of his for years and years now. And I find it interesting to like to the trajectory of his career, just to make this a mini Leonard Cohen podcast. It's like he started off as a prominent, poet in quebec i think in the montreal area like he was a very prominent canadian poet mm-hmm. he wrote a, a novel that was pretty well regarded uh, beautiful losers i believe somebody gets crushed by an elevator in that book it's kind of a fucked up book it's interesting to read though but mm-hmm. then at, i think in his 30s he's like oh i like the way the spanish guitar sounds i'm gonna learn to be play guitar and then he becomes mm-hmm. like this folk folk music hero then he kind of like disappears for a while. He like joins a, a uh, like, a, I don't think it's Tibetan, but he like joined some commune and just kind of like dropped out for a couple of years. And then mm-hmm. he found all, all of his life savings were stolen by a, like an advisor. So he had to start making music again. And by that point he was in his, I think in his sixties. So like, but as he got older, his music was about being older. Yeah. But it was kind of beautiful in a way. It was like, it was very, self-reflective but in a way that's like can be applied universally and so his older so like i saw him in 2013 i believe and i think he was in his 70s that was about like about five years before no like maybe three years before he died and he still brought it like he was still really energetic he was still like falling to his knees to say like you know falling Mm -hmm. is a very very slowly but he was like get down to his knees during emphatic parts of song like he still had a lot of energy for someone that age mm-hmm. but like it was just i i find his discography very interesting and i thought like if i make it that long i want to listen to everything around the same age age range that he made it 
mm-hmm. and just to see how it hits at that level. Because like, obviously, stuff where it's like, oh, I'm an older man, I know I'm going to be dying soon, and the songs reflect that message. It's not going to hit me in my 30s or 40s the way it will if I make it to 70s or 80s. So yeah, it is. It, you know, I'm losing the thread of the conversation, but and it, it is interesting. I was very surprised when I found out that he was. 42 when he made this because it definitely felt like oh this is the first movie of a young auteur who's going to hit on the scene it's like oh no he's been around for a while he's already middle-aged yeah I re- I get, it's like because i often you know someone who tries to create stuff himself i'm always like oh i'm i'm 40 no one gives a shit like i'm not going to get anything done at th- in this lifetime but it's also like no just don't you don't know you just put stuff out there and see how it goes so yeah. it was re- a little reassuring to find out that he was 42 when he made this it's like all right i know i'm not going to make some beautiful art film anytime soon but i may make something that can hopefully resonate with somebody no i think it's good and i do think i think part of this movie is that watanabe could not have done all this stuff he could not have got that park built if he hadn't had that experience working within the bureaucracy for so long and i don't i was thinking i you know i was wondering if it undercut the message a little bit but between Watanabe and Kurosawa himself like I think there is something for us to look at and say he did this at 42 and he went on to create like more stuff that was really good even later in life and so Mm -hmm. how do we as you know as creators or potential creators or as people with a creative sense that want to put something out into the universe like how do we take that message and I think it's very easy to see or look at people who create like an amazing work in their teens or their 20s or their 30s and you know look at that and say like well I've ruined my life like what do I do now but you know uh, going back like I even think about like our our patron Saint David Bowie and (laughs) comparing like Black Star to something like much or like you know Ziggy Stardust or whatever and I think there's a sense of Black Star being an album where he's looking back at his career and his life. And, you know, maybe we can't do that until we get there, if we do, as you as you mentioned. But I take some heart in, like, these sort of middle-aged men. And this is why I was thinking about having Akira in our, you know, uh, November middle-aged ennui movie fest, uh, having this be one of the movies. But, you know, I think it's good for us to see, like, we can start living whenever we decide to kind of put that down and and make it start. It doesn't have to be, well, I hit 40 and that's it for us, you know? Yeah, it definitely feels like for some reason we've been conditioned to put an expiration date on ourselves. And I don't think there's any real justification or reason to do that. But it's something that's like so ingrained in me, I have to kind of take a step back and be like, okay, just because Keats died at 32 doesn't mean that I'm never going to make anything because I'm still alive at 40. So it's kind of like, you know, you got to have perspective, but also, you know, for some reason, society just told us, oh, if you haven't made something of merit by this point, you're done for. And that's not true. Yeah. So, so in, in Watanabe's fashion, you just kind of have to say, fuck you to the system in a degree. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's, these are messages I didn't think about being in the movie, but I guess really are there once you start breaking it down. You know, when people are like, you have to take a class to like learn how to watch a film or you have to take a class to learn how to write. And it's like, 
of course you do because like these are complex things and like you don't get them the first time or they are a feeling the first time or and how do you like tease it out um and i'm not saying you said that i'm saying that you know i've heard people yeah. say like you're gonna take a film class to learn how to watch a movie and it's like of course like these are things that if you're watching something of value like it's gonna stick with you it's gonna be something that you watch you know maybe multiple times and and you get different things out of it even just based on where you are in life you know so i i do think that's something there that even for me like the things i got out of it in my 20s are, are definitely different than the things i'm getting out of it you know kind of in my 40s i do want to bring in his sort of last failed attempt at finding meaning in his life and it's this this woman this young woman that works at the uh, I think it's Toyo who works at the at City Hall in his uh, in his section, and mm -hmm. she wants to she finds him because she wants to quit, and he basically starts platonically dating her. Is that I mean, do you think that's like a, an uh, appropriate way to put it? I think so. I mean, it uh, <laughs> it almost seems I can't. I think my my significant other is like it's almost like he's a vampire kind of trying to drain her of her life energy at points. I mean, he, he someone, kind of is, yeah. And he definitely, yeah. I think that's a, a very accurate perception because he, he's, like you said, so she comes to him because for some reason she needs to get approval to resign from her job, which is like, yeah. well, that's insane. Just stop showing up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like he, I never thought, I never, it definitely never comes across as sexual or lecherous or anything. It's almost like, I almost saw it as a child proxy where he knew he couldn't have the relationship yeah. with his son. Yeah. So here's this younger person who I can help out. Some, Cause like he notices she's wearing these stockings that are just full of holes. So they, they leave the home, his home to go. He's like, I need to buy stockings for my daughter-in-law. And then he ends up giving them to her. And then they just start like hanging out. Like that, you know, they go to the pachinko parlor again, they go get food. And then ultimately she's like, Oh, this is nice. And, you know, she tells them he she tells him all the nicknames that she's come up come up with for the people in the office. Yeah. And she reveals that her, you know, she doesn't want to tell him, but she ultimately tells him the nickname that she came up with him, which was Mummy. Yeah. And you can tell he's kind of like, oh, fuck. You know, like, and he, he realizes like, yeah, that's an accurate assessment. Like, yeah, I can't be mad at that. Yeah. And so and then that relationship eventually devolves because she gets a job in a factory and he's still like, I need to see you. I want to hang out with you. And she's like, I'm tired. I'm working all the time. I don't have the time to see you. Plus, this is weird. I don't want to yeah. do this anymore. And then she relents and she's like, we'll have one more. I'll go out to you tonight. But this is the last time. And they go out to this meal and it's contrasted. It was like the two of them in this booth looking at each other, very awkward. She doesn't want to be there. He doesn't know what to say. And in the background, it's all these young people having a birthday party. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. like, well, it's just very cruel. It's a, you know, it's a very sharp division. Yeah. You know, and then well, he eventually reveals, oh, oh no, he, he tells her like, I got cancer. He's like, try to explain why he's acting like a, such a weirdo. And then he talks about why, you know, talks about his son and all this. And, you know, it doesn't really go anywhere. It's just sort of like a sad last encounter. Yeah. And I, I was going to say, you want to talk about things that I didn't pick up on, you know, the kind of the first time, the sort of like, maybe I was just seeing it as a young man in my 20s, but I, I really thought this date was sort of shitty, and they were both kind of shitty in this yeah. situation. 
but like this time, like I didn't pick up on the kind of paternalistic sort of aspect of it until this time. And maybe it's being like an older guy. And, you know, when she like runs up to him uh, in the street saying that, oh, she needed his, his stamp to, um, you know, quit she looked like a child and I was like, Oh, like, this is like a, a, like a, a parent child sort of situation, especially since he can't connect with his own son. Um, this is what's kind of going on here. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't pick up on that as at all as a younger man, but older as an older person, it's like, Oh, like this isn't meant to be like a date. And I shouldn't feel like icky about that part of it, at least anyway, like it is him trying to like re parent almost in a way that maybe he didn't maybe the you know the montage sort of suggested he didn't with his son he's yeah. trying to experience joy by eliciting joy from her because like yeah i think it's gotten to the point right he's gotten to he's gotten to this point in life where like he doesn't even know how to take care of himself in essence in kind yeah. of like an emotionally intelligent way as far as like yeah. you know self-care or whatever the you know buzz terms are nowadays for like just yeah. making sure you're have a semblance of happiness in your life like he just doesn't know how to do anything that brings him joy so he's like oh if i do things that make this young woman happy maybe i can get some happiness from that which i guess he does but ultimately it does it doesn't last for long yeah you can't like live i think this is what he learns from this situation you can't live through the happiness of someone else like it's got to be something you build for yourself but i think your partner is completely correct that he is like a vampire and he's feeding off this person. That's not really a way to live uh, and to create his own happiness. But also, I'm also thinking about it in a way that's like, he's sort of a child that has neglected figuring out what makes him happy. And maybe that could have been his son and maybe that could have been being really good at his job and doing things that are helpful for people, but he just never did them. And so again, the other, one of the other things I remember from the commentary is when he's walking down that staircase, they're singing happy birthday. And it's obviously it's for the birthday party that they're having in the background, the kind of, I would say, you know, more upper class sort of young mm -hmm. students or women, but it's also a birthday for him because he's like figured out what's going to give meaning to his life and what's going to give him pleasure. What's going to give him the energy to, you know, do things that are boring or shitty or even sort of dangerous as we saw with the Yakuza later in the film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you're yeah. exactly right. I totally forgot that that last encounter between them is the moment when he realizes what he wants to do with the, his remaining time. Because early on in the movie, there's this group of women trying to get a cesspool cleaned up. And one was like, why don't you just turn it into a park? Like, kids are just hanging out in this area, getting sick from all the pollution. Yeah. And there's this one montage where it's like, running around city hall i'm saying city hall because i don't know the proper term but like they're yeah, just getting passed along from one bureaucrat to the other it's like oh uh, oh that's a public sewage issue oh that's a park issue oh yeah. you have to go to the mayor oh and so like they go through all these people and it's like oh no you have to go the you can't we can't do that you have to go here 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 and it's just kind of eventually one of the women just like goes off yelling at somebody and so yeah. the big revelation from that final counter is he realizes oh I'm going to spend my final days getting this park built, which yeah. leads me to the one question I really wanted to ask you. Mm -hmm. Do you think Ikiru was the inspiration for Parks and Recreation? Huh. It's a good question. I mean, this lines up almost perfectly yeah. with the season one overarching plot about building the park on top of that landfill. 
I mean, it would have been sadder if Leslie Nope got stomach cancer during that <laughs> first season, but uh, yeah, no, you're right. And just knowing um, who's that, I don't remember anyone's name ever anymore. And so uh, if I'm an old man, this is, this is why, or this is- I'm evidence. having the same problem. I, I found, are you familiar with Immaculate Grid, the, the game, the website game? No, I'm not. So it's a three by three row. And the one I found is like just different sport versions. So it'd be like three teams at the top and like on the X axis and three on the Y axis. And you have to okay. remember players that played for both teams. I can only remember a handful of players from my youth and contemporary players. So like I'm very bad at the game because I have no knowledge prior to early 90s between probably... 93 to 98 yeah and maybe like the last two or three years like but everything else i have no knowledge of sport so it's and i i can think i'm like oh it's that guy he was a forward for the 76ers and like the <laughs> mid 90s i kind of remember what he looks like but i yeah i think he also was on the timberwolves but i've been doing that past couple days and i've never feared that i have early onset dementia more so than by playing these games because like i just cannot remember anything to save my life so maybe it is just being 40 or we're just on a rapid decline i don't know por que no los dos um, <laughs> sí, <señor. laughs> um no i i forgot i was gonna actually talk to you about this uh in our like weekly sports cry session but basically anyone who doesn't play for the warriors right now like i've been watching a lot of basketball and i will very confidently say players names and like maybe get the last name right and then completely like fuck up their first name and it's like what is happening to me i i mean not that i was like fantastic at it before i you know i definitely wasn't like jerry seinfeld reciting like baseball players or whatever but i knew people's names like especially like good to like mid-tier folks on on you know the big teams i remember their names and now it's like that mccullough fell like uh cj mccullough i called him brian mccullough and i was like Wait a second. That's not his name. Well, it's it's the same with actors too. Performers. Yeah. I'm just like, Ugh. and like, I used to be able to like, kind of find my way to find the person eventually on IMDb, and now yeah. I'm just getting really bad at that. I'm like, oh my god. I just, I just hope I can remember my friends and family names at the rate I'm going because it's 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 all pouring out of my brain at a rapid rate at this point. But Michael Schur is the person whose name I was desperately. I was going to call him Moe's from The Office, but Michael <laughs> I mean, Schur... Both was, same person. Yeah. M Michael Schur, who was Moe's on The Office and also wrote for The Office and co-created Parks and Rec with, with Greg Daniels. I could absolutely, you know, having uh, listened to some interviews with him, I could absolutely see him watching this movie and, you know, kind of pulling from it to make Parks and Rec, and especially, as you said, that first season... I could see it. I mean, he never said it, but I could absolutely see it as being a, a, a <laughs> let's make a funny version of Akiru. How about that? Mm -hmm. Well, this, <laughs> this leads me to one of the questions I, I gave you some heads up on because I wanted you yeah. to have, I had a quick time to think about it. Oh, let me see how I worded it. What kind of public works project would you specifically like to spearhead? That was a harder question. And I do like this park. And I was sort of thinking about at the end of this movie, and especially that last scene where the younger guy in the office is looking over the park that Watanabe made and their children playing on it is, maybe I could buy some land and maybe I could buy some land in Japan and just like make it a park and, you know, 
bequeath it to a city or whatever. So I did like think about that. It seems like the easy answer, just given that, you know, that's what happened in the movie. But I did feel a strong feeling of that in, you know, seeing that last scene and and almost like looking over, feeling like I was looking over into that park in the same way the the younger office worker was. And, you know, so like, and I taught English in Japan and I worked with elementary school kids and middle school kids. And it felt like there'd be like a connection there, you know, kind of having a park and and being able to leave something like that. But I thought, I thought about, I wanted to think about it more, uh, just given that you gave me some heads up. And so I did think about like some sort of like wildlife, uh, something 10 acres where we can let like butterflies butterfly, you know, like have that milkweed growing and let the monarch butterfly continue to like semi exist. Cause like, I, I do feel for the things that are like just helpless in, in, in the face of, human capitalism, you know? So those are, those are the ones that I was sort of thinking about. And yeah, I think that's kind of, you know, I, I don't expect to be like, I don't know who even my example is. Cause like you, you want to say Trump rich or Mark Cuban rich or Elon Musk rich, but they're all, you know, bullshit, uh, fake paper, stock rich, you know, Bill Gates rich, I guess. I don't expect to be Bill Gates rich ever, but you know, what are my means? And, and at the end of my life, if I have the, you know, the benefit of kind of seeing it coming, um, what can I do with that? And and where something that I feel connected, what is something that I feel connected to? And I think uh, children and, and Japan and, and wildlife are, are things that I do feel that sort of connection to. And so, you know, if I were to leave like, quote unquote, a legacy, that would be it. Or those would be things that I I, I feel that personal connection to. And I, I don't know if I told you, like my plans for like when I am dead and I've told my partner this and I need to probably write it down somewhere is actually, I know I need to write it down given that, you know, we're, we're lawyers, but just fucking take my body and throw it in the Pacific ocean. I, that's all I want. That's all I need. You know, I feel like being a person from Asia and being someone who like lived in Asia for a while, like, all i want just throw my body in in the pacific and that's my connection with like the rest of life and if anyone like remembers me it's not because they have to go to my like stupid grave or whatever uh it's because like i did something good or i helped them or something happened in life that was you know uh that makes me makes them remember me and it's not because like they feel obligated to go see like you know kind of where my physical corpse is decaying or whatever but you know i will turn the question around on you and and so what would you how would what is your like you know kind of public works project well it's funny that you mentioned wanting to be launched into the pacific ocean because for a lot of my life i've wanted to have a viking funeral in the atlantic Uh specifically off the the commercial pier uh in fort lauderdale i wanted to because <laughs> that, that was really close to where i lived most of my childhood so i wanted to just be launched in launched from the beach the funeral pyre out into the ocean i guess it had to be a bunch of my friends because i don't mm-hmm. think any of them are very adept with a bow and arrow so you'd have to be kind of everybody taking a shot with a flaming arrow to try and get me on fire <laughs> yeah but that was what my goal for life. but i think it Ultimately, whenever I die, I'll probably be so far removed from my time in Florida that that won't make any sense. So I, I don't know how I want my body. I know I, know I don't want to be buried because who gives a shit? Um, 
anyways, getting sidetracked. I th- it took me a while to think about a good answer for this too. I ultimately decided I would like to have a a cozy little library, and well, that's only the first part. Based on there's this mm-hmm. little library. It's not one of my normal ones that I've ever frequented here in Denver, but there's one I went mm-hmm. to once to pick up something, and I think it was like a former cottage, but it also had like these really neat mm-hmm. kind of mosaic like night fighting a dragon murals in the entire i think there was even a fireplace but i just walked in it was a very tiny library it was super cozy and i was like oh i wish this was my normal library because it just looks so inviting so some little library like that that's not overwhelming or multi-story just kind of like kind of a small house in essence but i'd also want there to be a small movie theater within that library that would have free public screenings of bullshit movies like this like that that would be my ultimate <laughs> kind of yeah cause that I would champion for a, a public work project. Yeah. I I love that and I I haven't shown you the library space in 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 our house here right now. Uh but I'm trying to build like a little like personal library for myself and <laughs> fuck man. <laughs> I have the books for it. Um uh and like there's so many books in this like um my like personal little library and i i don't know that anyone wants those books in my family when i when i die and so that'd be amazing like i'd love to like either endow them to like a place or like build a little like public library and you know be the little king of everything and and you know kind of set how it's supposed to run or operate and something like that i I think that's really nice too and uh Mm -hmm. just as important like as reading and literature and and research has been to, I think both of us, I think that's really like a love thought. And I remember even like working at the, the city hall in the town I worked in, in Japan and someone died and he had like a massive book collection that he endowed to the city government. And like, like most of the city workers like that I worked with were there um, just going through his books and like looking through what was in it and like what they could like salvage for the library and things like that. And um, so I do remember that pretty clearly. And then there's one that I don't really talk about. And I was thinking about doing and kind of what you had mentioned reminded me of it. But um, I had a cousin from Bangladesh um, who younger than me. And then the last time I went, um, I think I was at our college at Oxford, um, our sophomore year to Bangladesh, like during the summer. And um, I was like bored out of my mind. Uh, he let me borrow his Xbox and uh, I was like super appreciative. Um, but he was like younger than me. He was like, I don't know, maybe in like middle school or high school at that time. And he ended up going to Oxford as well. Um, well, after like, you know, we had graduated and stuff. And then, you know, the he died during a terrorist attack in Dhaka. They had like, Jesus. yeah, I know. And so um, it... I, I don't talk to many people about it, but I was very, it was a very depressing kind of thing. Cause he was like, you know, a younger guy. And from what we understand of what happened, like he could have left. He was there with a couple of other Oxford students, um, but they weren't like from Bangladesh. And they were like from India and they um, weren't Muslim and he was Muslim. So he could have left, but he didn't cause like they couldn't leave. Um, and so I wanted to like start a scholarship at Oxford in his name and 
I mean, I can't now just given how garbage the tech industry has been for me the last like six months or eight months, but that was something I was really thinking about. And, uh, you know, given my partner's like skill set, I think that's something that we were trying to work on and, and haven't, you know, kind of moved on yet. But that was something that I wanted to like do at Oxford. Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm at the point where like, that's something that could like keep me busy and off the street, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. That was something that, you know, when we're talking about sort of legacies and, um, not even sort of like mine, but people, I guess that I admire, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, getting into my forties, I've seen like too many young people that I admire, like pass away. And I, I'm, I mean, that's been like, not to like bring a complete downer to this, bring this whole podcast to like a complete standstill, but it came to mind and I don't know. I, I don't think there's any way to have a discussion about this movie and not have it yeah. ultimately be sort of a, a sad or melancholy experience. Yeah. So sorry, listeners. Fuck you, I guess. I yeah, know. sorry. Sorry you had to go through that. If you're listening to this, I don't know. We might have to like just bleep this entire like last 15 minutes. Um, yeah, I don't know. So, and, and that's something I feel like that's like leaving the legacy of someone who's honestly better than me. Um, and it's something I can do. And so I, I you know, I, I guess like as you ask this question mm -hmm. and I think about it a little bit more thoroughly, like that's sort of something that. I think in essence, this from the listeners I know of, this is in essence an Oxford podcast. So I feel like a, <laughs> <laughs> the listeners we have would probably be willing to support this if you decide to, to run with it. So I think, uh, I think he'd have some support to get. I'm really it, get bad it at asking people for money too, you know? So that's also like a, a problem. So I wanted to get like at least some of it myself and, and, you know, then try and figure out how to do it. But I, I was thinking about mailing them, but I didn't want to be like, I didn't want to like start getting them involved in the process until like I had started like figuring it out and, and getting it working. But, yeah. you know, kind of, uh, I, I'm sure people would, would, you know, be impressed by the kind of the person that, that my cousin was, but I, I, you know, I just, anyway, mm -hmm. um, I didn't, I didn't bring it up to fundraisers is what I'm saying, I guess, but let me uh, kind of moving up. Uh, moving around a little bit, um, I do want to, there's a couple of criticisms of Kurosawa and we can cut this part as well, but they also come up again in Seven Samurai. And I kind of want to like bring Seven Samurai up. Or I also want to suggest it as a movie for next month, just given that um, one of the characters very specifically mentions his birthday is in February um, and that you haven't seen it. So, but mm. the two criticisms of Kurosawa, like, I brought up a criticism of Kurosawa page as we were talking at the early part of the podcast. And one is that he does not really write well for women and women don't like feature very prominently in his movies. And the other is that he's sort of classist. Mm -hmm. It's funny in that I do think there's like a very communist Marxist sort of thread going through his films and very humanist, but I don't think that necessarily means you can't be classist as well. And you kind of see that with like, the peasant women that come up to like ask for this park to be built and you see it in the like the sort of bureaucrats and the sort of maybe middle class to upper middle class people wearing sort of western clothes and the non 
sort of the, the, the more peasant people wearing like Japanese clothes or kimono. You have this character of Toyo, who's really the only like woman in the film um, that's a character and she's more of like an object that teaches Watanabe a lesson than like a real sort of uh, person. I mean, you know, we can overuse the Bechtel test, but this movie wouldn't pass uh, clearly. And so I wondered like kind of what your thoughts are on, on if you saw these like sort of criticisms or, or how you, how do you feel about them? I think they're accurate. I, they're not anything I thought about prior to you mentioning it, but now you bring it up. I can't, you can't deny it that that's I true. I mean, there's a, we got the pack of local moms, which really are yeah. kind of like the inciting incident and then are gone. I mean, they're not even really the inciting incident. They're like, the background inciting incident that you don't even realize are the inciting incident until halfway through the movie. Yeah. You have the coworker who he hangs out with for her vitality. Yeah. There's the daughter-in-law who's kind of like, I want his yeah. pension so we can buy a home. So yeah, yeah there are no, you know, there's a couple sex workers th scattered throughout, women, yeah. but they, they, they're just, yeah, they're just there. I mean, it's it's tough because like so many films and until like maybe the past 15 ish, 20 ish years have been mindful of those issues. So it's kind of like, yeah, can you criticize them much? But it's also like, well, why wouldn't you not like it's it's one of those things. It's like that's just the way well, it no, was, it doesn't make but me that say, doesn't mean like, it was OK. Yeah, exactly. It's it's I think it's there as an issue, but you can't say like. Or I don't want to say that it makes me dislike Kurosawa or anything. I, I think these are reasonable criticisms of the his work. I don't think that has to take away from Definitely. the enjoyment of it and understanding sort of the cultural context, you know, kind of the country and then temporally, and then even sort of the things he's like writing about to some extent. I mean, I, I would love to see like more sort of, you know, well-rounded female characters i'd like to see more kind of if he if he is a marxist or a communist you know to whatever extent like and i think there's a, like a very like there's a very strong humanist bent to his work maybe you don't need the classism to talk about those things or or maybe they undercut your point a little bit i think all of that's like fair to say without saying that like you know, and I, I think I, uh, the last two. Oh, sure. I, yeah. I wasn't even thinking about the class stuff. I was thinking mostly about the, the role of the women in the films. I, I totally forgot about the class stuff. No, the class stuff is definitely there. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, that, that came up a lot in the commentary that I listened to too, where it's like a lot of the classes, a lot of the issues does stem from classism between, you know, the, the post-war haves and have not. So, I mean, just from a historical yeah. context, you can't, overlook the fact that that was a a part i think that's kind of like a it's not the the primary conflict but it's there like you can't set a story yeah. at in that city in that country at that era and not have it be in there in some in some form so that's it's definitely yeah and you know yeah something to be mindful of and i i uh you know i i i'm very you know as someone who did japanese studies in college, I'm careful. I'm trying to be careful about painting Japan with a broad brush because I can always think of a counterexample. 
I want to read you one thing though, and and get your take on it as well. When I was reading TV tropes for the movie, um, this note came up, and it said Kurosawa was heavily influenced by Fa Frank Capra's "It's a Wonderful Life," and both films have a very similar overall message no and shit. structure. Kurosawa's approach is less idealistic. And I wish they'd written more about this. I wish there was a source. Uh, sadly, there wasn't. But I'm interested in your thoughts. Like if, because we just we watched it's a wonderful life, and you you've watched it more than I have. I haven't. That was the first time I'd watched it the whole way through. I think there are similarities where it's like both are very backwards looking on one specific character's life. But mm. I don't know if hmm. on the surface when you said that I was like, oh yes, definitely. But the more I think about it. I don't know if it's a perfect, I mean, I, I do believe that it probably was an influence, but just the overall story, it's like, you know, George Bailey gets to see, I guess it's sort of like if Watanabe had lived long enough to see the impact his park made, it would be more mm -hmm. akin to it's a wonderful life because that George Bailey gets, this, gets the, have the angel show him look what an impact you've made on things and he's like oh yeah, yeah. i don't want to die now i actually have some value whereas this it's kind of like oh i have a couple months left to live i better do something that i'm proud of and hope <laughs> and and you don't get the gratification of knowing that it actually happened or i guess he does he does live long enough to yeah. see it completed but it's not the yeah. same where it's just kind of like i've accomplished it now it's time for me to go. And so it's kind of like a different dynamic. I guess it's similar DNA. I don't know. Maybe they have the same dad, but different moms. Maybe think of it kind of that, <laughs> that way. I, I do. I'm trying to think about it. And like, I do think that George Bailey is a different sort of person in that he kept putting off the things that he wanted to do and the things that he thought would bring meaning to his life, um, which evidently, as I think about it, did not include his children. But he still has that same sort of journey for meaning. And he also kind of finds out that his meaning is doing these things that he just thought were doing things that he thought were marking time in his life until he got to do the things that he wanted to do. And I think it's sort of similar mm. for Watanabe in, in the sense that he, you know, is trying to find something to add meeting or to answer that, you know, kind of almost universal question of like, what's the point of all of this? Um, and there is almost like a sense of, I don't know, going on that journey or, or trying to find that meaning in life. But I, I when you get that broad, I think maybe like 80% of filmmaking is like trying to answer that question one way or another. And so I don't, I don't know that you can like really put them together in that sense, but I did think it was interesting. I, I really want to see the source and see if there's any sort of additional information on what exactly got pulled from It's a Wonderful Life and in, into this movie. I mean, this is definitely sadder than than It's a Wonderful Life. So, uh, you know, I wonder what sort of... Oh, sure. Yeah. What have prompted Kurosawa to sort of go in this direction rather than the happier sort of direction that, uh, you know, It's a Wonderful Life went in on a positive tragedy, if that's, you know, if that phrase makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense given the how that it ends because the the hero accomplishes his goal, but he still dies. But it is an interesting death. I mean, Frodo we Baggins. sort of talked about it before. 
I mean, we saw it mentioned, alluded to it at the beginning. The the very famous image from this movie is Watanabe on a swing in the dark mm-hmm. in, at night in a snow in the snow, like it's snow falling around. It's not a snowstorm, but it's snowing, and that's kind of like this real iconic image of him, and probably the most iconic image of the film. And so, mm-hmm. the, the story ends like we we talked about it earlier. The structure of it's different, a little odd because. Halfway through the movie, you find out he's dead. And then kind of the second half of the movie is kind of like piecing together what happened from yeah. the co-workers as they recount the process of him going about getting this park made. And then you kind of like, mm-hmm. really, he just sort of like, just he persisted in a very passive way in order to get things done where he just like, would ask someone who is kind of decision maker, wouldn't you please reconsider and just sort of like stare at them with this really, I don't know if he was intention intending for it to be a sad face, but like just his visage and since he's slowly dying from cancer is kind of like this gaunt deathly face. And he would just stare at them until they sort of relented. So like he did that to the, was like the deputy mayor and the Yakuza. Mm -hmm. Like he just kind of like somehow, I don't want to say like he was so pathetic people gave him what he wanted because that's too mean and it's not definitely not what it it was but like somehow he was sort of able to you know he knew the channels he had to go through and he just sort of like just hung out until people gave him what they what he wanted but in a very non-aggressive yeah. way and yeah I was going to save this to the end but I'll just say it now I think that's a kind of a good message that you can take away from this movie because I have actually seen it applied in real life where when I was working at the dental school, one day this woman called and I took it to my supervisor who had the, who used to do the job that I did as the patient advocate. Mm-hmm. She's like, Oh, so-and-so is back again. And it turned out that this woman was like an elderly woman, low income had gotten dental care at this dental school years ago. Something went wrong. And like once a year, every year, she contacts them and just is so persistent. No, I, annoying's probably too harsh, but like she would call and contact and just be like, hey, hey, uh, you know, like, and she just kind of bugged people until they just gave in and gave her what she wanted. And so she pretty much was getting mm-hmm. free dental care every year for the rest of her life because she just like kept guilting these people into giving her what she wanted. Yeah. And I think that is... Yeah. There is a lot of truth to that, as in this movie. It's like, if you are persistent and, you know, some, uh, you know, sometimes you do have to be a little aggressive or a little, you know, I don't know. It's probably not even good. I'm speaking as someone who was telling you about their <laughs> sublimated rage issues earlier. Uh, but, you know, like, <laughs> there is some value in persistence to getting what you want in these sort of contexts. Like, don't, you know. Mm-hmm. sadly i think a lot of pop culture conceptualize it in the term of like oh i'm going to annoy this person so much until they date me and fall in love with me but i think in like a public context yes. where it's like yeah. oh if you like if you needed a pothole fixed and you just kept like contacting the people who actually have the ability to fix it you like you just call over and over and over until they like all right we'll do it just so you leave us alone i think there is some yeah. truth to that in the world 
Yeah, yeah, and I, I totally sadly, think so. I think it's I, being abused a lot by conservative politics. Oh, don't even, oh man, I cut out a lot of the politics from last week's episode, but don't get me started about <laughs> who is whining about what and what it's <gasps> causing people to do. But I hate, I hate everybody. Um, no, and I, I agree, and I think he stands up in the best way he can, both as like he is a person and then sort of the culture he's living in. But, you know, I mean, he almost finds a backbone in a way trying to like accomplish this goal. And I do think you can't, and you see it with these like fucking Nepo babies to use the modern modern parlance, like modern parlance. These people who have never had to like strive for anything or failed at anything. And I, I don't want to mention any former president's adult children who, you know, might've tried to broker peace in the Middle East or, you know, whatever they supposedly did, it just, you, you, you grow that backbone through going through hardships like this. And maybe, you know, Watanabe did not have it until he had a goal and tried to accomplish it and got pushed back and, and sort of tried to, you know, regroup and, and work at it again and again. And so I, I just, am I saying that we should eat the rich? Kind of, yes. Well, that's weird. Yeah. For the listener, the podcast just completely died. <laughs> um, and so we are back, and maybe it's a good indication from the universe to start wrapping things up. This episode was so sad that the recording killed itself. <laughs> did it commit suicide or did it have stomach cancer? That's for you to decide, listener. All right, well, I want to go through a few of the remaining questions I had. This is luckily not too too morose. This is the second movie in a row where the protagonist buys a hat. (laughs) What was the last hat that you bought? Oh, fuck. (laughs) Uh, Good question. Um, I bought um, Hieroglyphics, you know, the the Bay Area rap group. I bought their logo on a hat uh, on a... um, on a baseball cap. And so it's like kind of textured, uh, black on, uh, white on black. Um, so that was the last one I was thinking about getting an Oakland hat. Cause like, can't wear my San Francisco warriors hats anymore. Um, but I'm a big hat guy. So, uh, and I was looking for like MF doom hats too. So I was looking for like a lot of rap, uh, adjacent hats or rap hats, I guess. Uh, as the cool kids are saying it these days. How about you? I bought a Mr. Toad hat when I was in Epcot in early December. It is uh, a style <laughs> of hat I'll never wear. It's like, it's not even a dad hat. It's just like super floppy with a big brim. Like, yeah, I've seen hipster douchebags wear this kind of hat and I don't like the style at all. So I'm never going to wear it, but I wanted to buy it just so Disney analytics will be like, oh, there's a market for Mr. Toad yeah. items. Let's make more. So it's currently on top of a little uh, little item in my office. So this thing's wearing a hat. So it, it's a great design. It's like stitched in Mr. Toad with all the supporting characters and a uh, black out- stencil outline behind him. It looks really cool, but I will never wear it because it looks stupid as shit on any human's head. But uh, that's my most recent hat purchase. And going out there we didn't really talk about it at all like he Excellent. he he wears like a, just a boring hat at the beginning and then during his uh 
his 20 his 20s in one night mm -hmm. uh, a random woman steals his hat so the novelist is like oh you need a new hat you're a new person new hat so he buys a new bowler hat and wears that for the rest of the movie and ends up becoming like the symbol for him like after he dies and during the funeral or i guess it's a memorial more than a funeral yeah like, during the memorial sequence when all his co-workers and family are together reminiscing about him and the park project a police officer a police officer arrives with the hat and informs them he found it in the park and that he saw watanabe the night before on the swing in the park and he just thought it was some drunk and so he didn't do anything and he felt bad because he's like i maybe i could have kept him alive if i'd gone to talk to him like my instincts told me and that's where we get the 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 really iconic shot from the film but everyone kind of like looks at the hat and the, the hat just becomes so iconic for him. Mm -hmm. And so I was asking, I was wondering, is there a article of clothing that you think will come to symbolize you at any point? You know, hopefully you don't die anytime soon. My iconic death mask is no, um, I, I was telling my partner this, but someone said I was really good at street. She was watching like, some netflix show where uh the challenge was to design streetwear like it's a fashion show and i told her that people when i used to go into the office people thought i did street streetwear very well um and so we were talking about that and so i mean it's the hat thing right because like i'm going to japan pretty soon i like the hat that i wore there last time uh which is a warrior's hat but uh as i texted you uh last week or maybe earlier this week i gotta find a new nba bandwagon to jump onto. but but honestly like i just wanted to like you know have a hat and take it there so i do think while my time wearing these like snapback you know especially like nba team hats is running low that's you know i think in my like 30s and and into my 40s i've been wearing them and i think that might be my like iconic piece of clothing but post covid sweatpants and a, and a, a tech company hoodie like that might be it and you know that's how i walk around the neighborhood and stuff when i have to walk the dogs so um i i'm not entirely sure if it's a indication of depression or it's just like well society has completely changed and here i am i think on the two sides of my lifestyle a like going out and especially like going out to work and stuff versus like staying home and working from home. I think those would be the two like major things. Yeah, I sort of had the same where the pandemic kind of really changed everything where I'm the same since it's cold so often in Colorado now, I'm pretty much always wearing sweats and a hoodie now. <laughs> also because the window I work by during my workday is drafty as shit. Yeah. So not only do I wear sweats all day, I'm also usually covered in a blanket while working. So uh, my my thin Floridian <laughs> blood is still coursing through me. If I had to think what it would have been prior to pandemic fashion, I would maybe say uh, a pair of Onitsukas because I feel like I wore those pretty consistently for years and years. Like it would be a different pair of shoes, yeah. different color, different different variations of the Onitsukas. But I feel like I'd probably I probably wore Onitsukas mostly nonstop for probably like a good 10, 10, 12 years of my life. Now I just wear, uh, I would just wear dorky uh, Asics now, which, you know, is the the mother brand of Onitsukas. 
I still, those are my like, I have like, I really got into sneakers, uh, especially before the pandemic. Uh, but my like go-to sneaker is some colorway of the Onitsukas, um, especially the laceless ones. Mm. Cause like, I, you know, again, living in Japan, you have to take your shoes on and off so much. I was like, fuck this. I'm just going to buy a bunch of like, uh, shoelaceless, uh, Onitsukas. And those are my like go-to like sneakers. So like even Japan last time, you know, uh, at the end of last year, like I took two pairs of shoes. One was like the Onitsukas and one was like some Nike kill shots, which were supposed to be like my nicer sneakers. And I just wear the Onitsukas the entire time. So yeah. Wow. <laughs> Man, if Onitsuka sponsored us, we would be like hogs and shit. Like we would just be so happy. <laughs> yeah. Don't even, you don't even have to pay us. Just send us shoes. I, I, I would, I would Kramer that deal. So I'll hard. wear them on my hands and we'll start. We can see each other while we record this. And we do have the option of making it a video record. I will wear the <laughs> shoes on my hands. If Onitsuka sends us free stuff just so people can see them. So if anyone at the Onitsuka brand is listening to this, yes. I don't know how you found whatever us, it but takes, please guys. give us free shoes. Yeah. Just give us whatever shoes you like dig out of the, the trash. Like that's totally fine. We would, we would stand you for years just for like that. So yeah. So like those were actually, and I had like a, a pair that I wore uh, when I first started working in San Francisco and people liked them. And so it kind of became like a little bit iconic for me. And yeah, like I, uh, I love those shoes and they, that would definitely be one of those uh things that would that would be my miles morales uh air jordans all right well we've already kind of touched on the usual final question of what can we learn from this sad man we've already kind of answered that question so i'll have a new final question for us to go out on what playground equipment would you like to die on I don't, I'm not even sure if I have the upper body strength for the monkey bars anymore, but I could definitely try. Um, I want to go on a slide, but a really bad slide, like the kind of like twisty slide that an adult could die on. <laughs> um, and how about you? Have you, have you decided on a piece of playground equipment that you would prefer to die yes, on? Yes, it almost came up earlier, but I decided to, to hold on to the, my answer. I want to die on a seesaw. And then that way someone could just drop like a ton, like a ton weight on the other end and launch my corpse into the sun. <laughs> to shoot you into space. Yeah, I feel like I like it. I, I like it a lot. I guess there's a difference between dying on the equipment or using the equipment to like, yeah, know, I, I, I don't want the final, seesaw to kill me. I just deal. want to be sitting on it and then um, die if I have to die on a something on a playground. I don't want to be like, crushed to death by a seesaw though that's (laughs) That's, not a fetish of mine no funny business not getting crushed to death on a seesaw uh i was trying to paraphrase that quote about the monkey the monkey paw from the simpsons and i don't remember remember it well enough to do so so sadly that's going to be that's going to be a it's going to be a shame or it's going to be a a bad uh a failed pull i guess anyway Clearly, I'm I'm struggling at the oh, end here. Oh, we both here, are. But, We're, I mean, this uh, is just is evidence of the fact what we talked about earlier. That, 
we can't remember names or words anymore. We're we're losing mm -hmm. it. Yeah. The, the, well, the thing I learned on the last podcast was if we just keep talking in, long enough, like we can edit it into something that is like reason, semi reasonable and sounds reasonably coherent. I did have a note saying that that last, uh, you know, kind of quote unquote date with uh, Watanabe and Toyo, um, that is one of the worst Tinder dates I've ever seen. Uh, and maybe one of the worst Tinder dates we've seen on the podcast so far. Buddy, we could do an entire series about bad Tinder dates that I went on. <laughs> That'll be one of the Patreon levels. I, I don't, I, I don't have any really good stories about it. Yeah, maybe. I will tease this by saying that my brother, uh, one of his favorite Tinder date stories is he went on a date with someone and the woman sort of asked him, uh, oh, what do you do? And he was like, oh, like I'm a video games journalist. And she was like, oh, I thought you said you were 30 something in your profile. Um, and so uh, it was, and he he was, um, and so the date kind of went downhill from there. Uh, but yeah, like Patreon level, if anyone besides the Oxford people who were there to listen to the or hear those stories when they first happened, ever listens to our podcast, we can we can we can Patreon level that I for sure. That. Recounting those dates may actually make me want to get Go on ahead, the sorry, seesaw and, and launch yeah. myself into the sun. That's how bad some of those dates were. <laughs> Just launch yourself into space. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you're feeling like you want to be out on a swing in the middle of winter, uh, maybe don't do that. But uh, if you want to be launched into space, I do like, based on your anecdote about uh, the play you wrote about the car being launched into space by our uh, our friend Elon Musk. Maybe I do want to be launched into space somehow or another. Oh, I didn't even think about that. I guess I really do have a thing about being having being launched into space. Hmm. I should get back into therapy and explore this. <laughs> Maybe you actually do have a fetish for it. I just want to die alone in the <laughs> cold vacuum of On space. On that note, say be well, sad boys, sad girls, sad people of all gender orientations. I think our next episode is going to be In the Mood for Love by Wong Kar Wai. And we'll have that ready for Valentine's Day. So get ready for a very sad and depressing love story there, my friends. Get ready for love in, in, in sad boy style. It's the only love we know. <laughs> Bye, listeners. Bye, everybody. Bye.